we'll start recording. All right, so we are beginning this morning our study of Genesis uh, in the beginning, and uh, I plan this morning to not probably even get to verse 1. We want to do a little bit of background, a little bit of introductory material, thinking through some things. Um, So I don't expect we'll get to verse 1. We'll get to that next week. Uh, But there's really a lot to unpack before uh, we even get into the book of Genesis, okay? So does anyone know where the name Genesis comes from? Why do we call this the book of Genesis? Does anyone have an idea? Educated guess? Okay, uh, it actually means, it's very similar, it means origin or generations. It's from actually, uh, the Greek Septuagint name was carried over to our English name uh, from the Greek word uh, genosis, and uh, it's from, actually directly from Genesis 2-4, where it says this is the book of generations or origins, okay? So that's the English name we've come up with. The Hebrew name is actually what you said in the beginning, the very first word in the verse, Bereshith in Hebrew, is the name for, for the, what the Hebrew uh, title for this book is. But Genesis, origins, generations. And so in Genesis, what we're going to find are the origins of creation when it comes to the universe, as well as mankind. And I, I love a good origin story. Um, I'm a big movie fan. If you've probably noticed, a lot of times when I'm preaching a sermon, I feel like I always default to some kind of illustration about movies, and so I found myself doing it again this morning, thinking about origin stories, and uh, you know if you've watched any kind of movies or TV shows, uh, prequels are very popular when they tell a story, and then you're probably asking yourself, well, where where did this all start, and they'll go back and have a prequel to a story. I know they did that, well, and I think the books that were written, like Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit was a very popular prequel to the Lord of the Rings series. Um, I thought about even kids' ones. We went, uh, the kids and I watched uh, Minions Rise of Gru that told the story of how Gru became so despicable and all that. So we love a good, our culture loves a good origin story or prequel. And definitely in the realm of superheroes, this is especially the case. I'm a big fan of like Marvel movies, uh, DC comics. And so one of my favorite origin stories, really one of my favorite trilogies, is the Batman, the, the Dark Knight trilogy. And Batman Begins is the origin story of, of Bruce Wayne in this trilogy. And so you find out, uh, how did he become Batman? You know, we, of course, learned his parents died and that he's afraid of bats. And you find out how he got the equipment, like his suit and the uh, Batmobile, things like that. So you learn a lot of foundational material that helps you when you get later on in the story to understand more things. And the same is true with Genesis. It's, it lays a foundation, really, for the rest of God's Word. It's such a foundational book. And so what, what kind of foundational questions are we likely to find as we study the book of Genesis? What are some foundational questions that we're likely to find uh, the answers to as we study this book? Where do we come from? How do we get here? Yeah, absolutely, as, as a humankind. What else? What other foundational questions might we find? Creation, yeah. So not even just us as human beings, but how did the earth get here? How did the planets, the stars? Right. Yeah. Right. What existed even before creation? What else? What other foundational things? 
Okay, purpose, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Get it even a little further out of chapter 1. Uh, and really, we're talking about the book of the, as a whole. We're seeking in this study, just because we could study Genesis for a long time, we're going to focus on the first 11 chapters. That doesn't mean we're never going to get past that, but we're going to uh, focus on covering the first 11 chapters that are very foundational to creation and things like that. Chapter 12 is where it transitions to Abraham and the patriarchs, and I hope we could probably get to that at some point, um, but I didn't want to overwhelm and say we're going to cover Genesis and be doing that, you know, till 2028 or something, so. What, so outside of chapter 1, what are some questions we find, foundational questions we might find answers to? Sin. Where did, how did sin originate? Uh, along with that, death, right? Where did death originate? We're going to see that in chapter 3, that Sin brings death, and so uh, absolutely. We could go a little further, uh, all the way to chapter 11, and, and where did language come from, right? Where, why do we have various languages and cultures and people groups? Um, even before that, we could talk about um, marriage and family. We see a foundation of that here in the first few chapters. Um, chapter uh, 2, where he says, you know, I've made man and woman, therefore man shall leave his... Uh, mother and father, and be joined to his wife. So we're going to see foundational things. Genesis is important because it gives us our origins, not merely the origins of one particular family, but the origins of matter, life, values, evil, grace, the family, nations, and other things in a way that unites us all. Okay, That's James Montgomery Boyce's uh, commentary on that. So I want to talk about a foundation for our worldview. Genesis lays a foundation for a biblical worldview. Uh, Every one of us, and this is outside of the church, inside the church, we all have a worldview. It's the lens through which we view the world, right? And really, what we're going to see is there's two primary worldviews today. There's a biblical worldview that starts with Scripture and views the world through the lens of Scripture and what God's revealed to us. And then what would you say would be maybe the other worldview? Another predominant worldview. Humanism starts with man. We're viewing the world through the lens of man, uh, through our reason, through assuming that everything's existed um, and and continued in a a, uh, uniform way since the beginning of, of time. And so... So that is really the predominant uh, worldview in our day and age, right? This humanistic, um, and we could go further, atheistic, really, um, worldview. And so this worldview considers the Big Bang to be the origin of the universe and evolution, the origin of life. And to question either one of those, if you question the Big Bang theory or evolution, uh, you're considered to be uneducated, unintelligent, right? The the common uh, consensus out there is this is just fact, right? Big Bang Theory, evolution, they're not really theories, they're fact. However, what we see as we study Genesis, time and time again, science proves what Scripture has taught, such as the earth being round. Scripture teaches that. There's a verse that talks about uh, the earth being round, uh, things like the atmosphere. Uh, the, scripture talks about there being this, this atmosphere, and so science confirms time and time again what Scripture's already taught us. And so I love this quote from uh, James Montgomery Boyce as well. He says, For the scientist who has lived by faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. 
He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I thought that was a great way of just describing how so many times science thinks that things are this way, and then as they use observation and use the scientific method, what do they come to conclude many times? What Scripture has already taught, okay? And so scientific theory, as we know, is constantly changing as more information comes out. And really, that's the idea of science, is that it's constantly putting out a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, using observation skills to try to determine the thing. And so as more information comes out, hypotheses are either uh, struck down or confirmed. And so we see this constant change in scientific consensus. One of the most recent examples uh, that I could think of with this is, how many of you have heard about the James Webb Space Telescope? Um, just giving incredible images of distant galaxies that we've never had the clarity to see before. And so, uh, as they've done this, what they've determined, and there's actually a, if, you've, if you're familiar with Not the Bee, they published an article, and it was basically a lot of these astrophysicists almost panicking because what they would expect to see as they have clarity of these distant galaxies was not what they saw. They expected... They expect these distant galaxies because they believe in a uh, point of origin and the Big Bang blew up and everything expanded out. They expected these further galaxies to be more asymmetrical, less organized. There's something, and I want to get into all the details, but talk, that they talk about redshifting. And so there's, you can look into all this stuff. But basically, when they see these images with more clarity than what the Hubble telescope could reveal, what they found is that these galaxies were not as asymmetrical or disorganized as they expected if the Big Bang were true. In fact, they were more organized. And, and really, one of the guys I read an article by, fascinating uh, guy if you've never heard of him, is Jason Lyle. How many of you have heard of Dr. Jason Lyle? He's a, uh, I don't know if he would call himself an astrophysicist, or he's, he's a brilliant guy. He, I, I know he worked for Answers in Genesis for a while. But he wrote an article, and again, way over my head, but but you could pick up some of the basics of here's what the creationist view would expect to see with the James Webb telescope. Here's what a Big Bang perspective would expect. And what happened is it confirms more of the creation uh, expectation than what the Big Bang would suggest. And so people are starting to even have to change their models and their theories based on these James Webb uh, images. And so you see, again, science is constantly changing Uh, Theories are constantly shifting uh, as more evidence comes out. And so, uh, I love this quote again by James Montgomery Voice. Or no, this is, sorry, another one. Um, When it comes to, and and I want to say this before I read this quote. We have to be careful. Scripture and science, are scripture and science at odds with one another? Do we have to choose one or the other? Absolutely not, right? Um, We have to have a biblical worldview through which we view the lens of science, but science confirms what Scripture teaches. So they're not at odds. We don't have to choose one or the other, check our reason at the door, just come by faith. That's not what we would see in Scripture. Okay, so, of course, to most of our society, though, to reject the Big Bang, to reject evolution as 100% fact means that you disagree with science, but that's not the case as we look at Scripture. Okay, I love this quote. 
it says, Darwin gave us a creation story, one in which God was absent and undirected natural processes did all the work. That creation story has held sway for more than 100 years. It is now on the way out. In the end of Christendom, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity it has. So what we see again, constant science changing as information comes out, but time and time again it confirms what Scripture teaches if you begin with a biblical worldview. Okay? But here's another aspect of why Genesis is so foundational, okay? And what big, the Big Bang Theory, what evolution cannot account for. It's this. Evolution, uh, we could say Big Bang Theory, all these, and we're talking about atheistic viewpoint, cannot account for things like human dignity, value, and justice, right? This is the biggest fault with that worldview, is... They, and really, those who hold to this worldview have to borrow from the, the biblical worldview. Because we all know it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to rape, it's wrong to whatever, fill in the blank. We all have certain moral values, but if we're just stardust, time and chance, then how can we ever say anything is morally wrong, right? Uh, this worldview cannot account for things like human dignity, value, justice, morality, um, R.C. Sproul put it this way, Man in the 20th century has been busily engaged in a quest for dignity. It is a very earnest quest. The civil rights movement developed the cry, We are human beings. We are creatures of dignity. We want to be treated as beings of dignity. So also have others. But the existentialist tells us that our roots are in nothingness. That our future is in nothingness. And he asks, Think, man, if your origins are in nothing and your destiny is in nothing, how can you possibly have any dignity now? If our past history tells us that we have emerged from the slime, that we are only grown-up germs, what difference can it possibly make whether we are black germs or white germs, whether we are free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can sing of the dignity of man, but unless that dignity is rooted substantially in that which has intrinsic value, all our songs of human rights and dignity are so much whistling in the dark, they are naive, simplistic, and credulous. And the existentialist understands that. He says, you're playing games when you call yourselves creatures of dignity. If all you have is the present, there is no dignity, only nothingness. Okay, So think about that. If we take this worldview to its extreme, we're, we're, we end with meaninglessness, with lawlessness. There's no really moral foundation to anything. Okay? We can't stand against injustice, whether it be racial injustice, so whatever injustice we're, we look at the society and see, we can't stand against that if we hold to an atheistic evolutionary worldview. Okay? Again, if we're just highly evolved animals, then we have no basis to say that anything is right or wrong. That's why the biblical worldview is the only one that can account for morality. Okay? We know the world cannot function apart from some kind of moral standard, some kind of moral foundation of what's right and what's wrong, okay? And so again, those who hold to an atheistic worldview will borrow from 
the Christian worldview in areas of morality, right? To a degree, Not, they'll pick and choose, right? They don't want to accept everything God's revealed as right and wrong, but they want to accept the things that internally they know is right. God's written their law, his law upon their heart. And so we see in Romans 1, they've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, right? I, an example of this I, I saw recently um, was, it was a clip of a, a couple news anchors, and I don't know where it was in the country, but they were doing a report about, a, I think it was a newborn monkey at the zoo or newborn gorilla. And so they were looking at this. Uh, one of the news anchors was a white woman, and the other news anchor was a black man. And so they're watching this clip, and the woman, right before the end, as they're showing the picture of this monkey, she said, oh, he kind of looks like you, to her colleague, which, of course, we know, cross the line, the next day she had to apologize on air for what had happened. But here's the thing. We, we can understand why a comment like that would be hurtful, um, but... I guarantee many of the people who are outraged believe that we did evolve from monkeys, right? And in fact, Darwin, and really Darwinian evolution, is racist to its core because it teaches that we are evolved from animals and that some humans are less evolved than others, right? And so, again, you see this uh, idea of they're seeking to borrow from a Christian worldview when really the foundation of their worldview teaches that what, what is racism? Some are superior, some are inferior, right? And so just an example of, again, only a biblical worldview can account for even racism, right? We know, we look at Scripture, and why do we know racism's wrong? Because there's one race, as we're going to see, the human race, okay? We're not evolved from animals. We are created in the image of God, we're image bearers of God, and so that is why we have dignity, that is why we have value, okay? So, let's keep moving on, we could talk about, we could take this class and make it all about apologetics, which would be a lot of fun, but I want us to get to the scripture and work through that, okay? So, let's talk about the book of Genesis, we just finished our study um, the week before last on the inductive Bible, inductive Bible study, and we talked about uh, observation, interpretation, application, okay? And one of the ideas of interpretation, or really go back to the observation stage, was determining what kind of literature a passage is. And we talked about different books have, may have a mixture of uh, poetry, narrative, you know, things like that. But when we look at the book of Genesis, primarily what type of literature is it? What type of literature is Genesis primarily? Not that there's not going to be elements of different things, but when we look at it as a whole, what is the primary uh, form of literature? Narrative, right. Uh, history, we definitely see that, and, and really, when we get to chapter 12, no one's denying the fact that Abraham on is narrative, but we get into issues where many people want to allegorize the first chapter, the second chapter, uh, really up to even the flood passage in Babel. Uh, say it's just allegory, but yeah, it's narrative, it's history. If we take Genesis as narrative history, we cannot possibly fit evolution into it. And so proponents of what we call theistic evolution, we've talked about an atheistic worldview, um, but many have tried to, because they want to seek to borrow from what science supposedly says when it comes to evolution, the Big Bang, they want to try to, well, we've got to take evolution and we've got to try to find how can we cram this into Scripture? How can we make it fit? So not starting with Scripture and letting Scripture speak and interpreting things in light of that, 
but starting with ourselves, with our own reason, with what science seems to say, and now let's try to cram it in here, okay? And we'll talk about a couple of these theories as we walk through Genesis 1, um, but ultimately, you have to allegorize Genesis. You have to talk about, well, there, this is just a, a poetic way of God trying to share how he created things, okay? But this is extremely dangerous ground to walk on, to try to cram evolution into Scripture because if we set a faulty foundation in Genesis, as we talked about, Genesis is foundational to the rest of Scripture. If we, put a, if we start with a faulty foundation and, and have cracks in the foundation, it's going to affect the way we view the rest of Scripture, right, ultimately. Um, Henry Morris says it this way, It is quite impossible, therefore, for one to reject the historicity and divine authority of the book of Genesis without undermining and, in effect, repudiating the authority of the entire Bible. If the first Adam is only an allegory, then by all logic, so is the second Adam, Jesus. If man did not really fall into sin from his state of created innocency, there is no reason for him to need a Savior. Okay? So, that's not to say... I want to be careful because there's a, a balance. Do you have to accept... Uh, you know, there's different ages that people come up with for the earth based on uh, the genealogies and things like that. Anywhere from 6,000 or so years to 10,000 if you're in a young earth view. Is that to say to, to be saved you have to believe that? I don't think so. But when you start to uh, put cracks in the foundation of Scripture, it can affect salvation it can't affect as far as your acceptance of look if there's not a literal adam if there's not literal uh, sin that happened and death came by sin it can it can creep down and affect our our view of the gospel okay so it is a, a very important issue that we want to be careful of someone else i think it was john phillips said abandon genesis 1 as unfactual and unreliable as mere mythology as a doctored-up copy of the Babylonian creation epic, as totally unacceptable to modern science, and Satan is one. If the Holy Spirit cannot be trusted when he tells of creation, how can he be trusted when he tells of salvation? If what he says about earth in Genesis 1 can be questioned, then what he says about heaven in Revelation 22 can be questioned. If the Holy Spirit cannot be trusted in Genesis 1, how can he be trusted in John 3.16? So, again, we want to be careful not to lay a faulty foundation, a foundation with cracks that could eventually cause our whole view of Scripture and the Gospel to come crumbling down. What we see is, in the New Testament, Jesus accepted the historicity of Genesis, creation and the literal Adam. He says to the Pharisees, don't you know that in the beginning God created them male and female, right? He's, he talks about God as their creator. So Jesus accepted this historicity uh, in his teaching. We could go into depth with that, but um, we see that idea. So if Jesus was wrong about Genesis being history, then is he truly who he said he is? Can we trust him in other ways? So again, I don't believe these are direct gospel issues that you have to believe the earth is anywhere between six and 10,000 years old or you're not saved. But again, it's an important issue to seek to lay a, a solid foundation that can't lead to doubting scripture elsewhere. Okay. So, it is important that as we come to Genesis, we've talked about this in the interpretation study previously, as we come to Genesis, we have to take it the way it was intended 
by its author to its original audience, right? That's always the test of Scripture. What did the original human author intend for his audience to learn, okay? So we have to step back. First of all, who is the author of Genesis? Moses, God, absolutely. Yes, yes. Moses is the human author, right? And I will say we could, again, we could have spent multiple weeks just in this introduction. There's a there's actually nowhere in Genesis where Moses identifies himself as the author. And so there's actually a theory that many have, have leaned to that there were actually three or maybe four different editors of Genesis. And they, used, they came up with this theory based on um, the preferred usage of God's name in various passages. And so they'll identify this passage or th- these verses are uh, the one that prefers to use God's name as Elohim. These prefer Yahweh. And so they, they try to say there's different authors and things like that. Well, again, we could get in-depth with that, um, but I want to say all, all that to say, really, um, we, we pretty well, it's pretty well accepted that Moses is the, uh, the human author of Genesis, okay? Um, we call the first five books and are widely accepted as the, the books of Moses or the law of Moses, so really he's been accredited with this. This theory didn't spring up until, I think, the 1900s or 1800s, maybe, I think it was in the early 1900s. And so, with that in mind, though, there are probably a couple edits within Genesis that were not made by Moses, okay? And this is part of the theory that they came up with that Moses didn't write it. But I think there can be, you know, like in Deuteronomy, you see the account of Moses' death. Do you think Moses wrote the account of his death? Of course, God could have supernaturally guided him in recording that, but that seems a little far-fetched. It's likely that someone afterward just recorded his death and we still view it as inspired by God, and as Moses is the primary author of Deuteronomy. The same is true with Genesis. There's a couple mentions. There's one of the land of Dan that wasn't named until uh, the time of the judges. Okay, So Moses couldn't have called it the land of Dan because it wasn't named until after his death. That's probably an external edit that was made later. And there's the expectation of Israel being ruled by kings uh, in Genesis 36-31. It says before Israel was ruled by any king. So we know this would have had to been edited later, okay? But we're pretty sure, and again, uh, common consensus is that this was written by Moses, okay? So when do you think Moses wrote the book of Genesis? When do you think this was written? Don't need the exact date, just maybe an idea of the uh, elements going on when he may have written this. Before he died is a great answer. Can we narrow it down anymore? After he was born and before he died, yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely. It seems probably likely that Moses records Genesis and really the rest of uh, the, the Pentateuch after the Exodus, so possibly when they're in the wilderness. Of course, they had a lot of time to kill, 40 years, so uh, would have been a good chance. Uh, a lot of people date it somewhere in the 1400s B.C., after the Exodus. So, how do you think Moses received the content of Genesis? Since everything written in Genesis occurs well before he's born. Okay, how do you think he received uh, this revelation? Uh, there's, there's a couple options, so throw out your ideas. What, or maybe we should start with that. What are the options that are out there as to how Moses received this information that he records in Genesis? Can you think of any ideas? 
Yes, absolutely. So you start with probably the most likely. could God have just, you know, all right, Moses, we're going to meet together in the mountain and you get a pen and I'm just going to write word for word what you write or what, what to write. Absolutely. Um, but God usually doesn't necessarily do that, right? Um, there are times, there are passages of Scripture where he does do that, write this, say this exactly. Um, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case. Um, it could be that God just, you know, revealed the history of Genesis to him, and he wrote it down in his own words, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I think that's probably the the best answer. Um, These accounts, especially when you get into the accounts of Abraham and the patriarchs, were likely either uh, history that was written down, maybe on stones, things like that, that were passed down through family lines, or as you mentioned, probably more likely oral history, that they were sharing this information to their children and their children's children. So this was a uh, you know, and if writing wasn't very um, common in that day, they, they would have really grasped to, we need to make sure we're sharing this accurately, passing it down accurately. And so it's likely that Moses probably met with different family people, collected this information, compiled it, things like that, especially, again, chapters 12 and on. What about the creation account? You think this was, this, of course, could have been oral history that was passed down. But it could be as well that God revealed this, uh, how creation happened about Adam, things like that as well. Okay, So there's probably, again, a little bit of mixture, maybe some oral history that's passed down. Of course, we know with the gospel accounts, that was the case. They were eyewitness accounts that you know someone like Mark wasn't there to see these, these things take place right in front of his face. So he's collecting, or Luke, they're collecting eyewitness accounts and compiling them. Uh, that's probably how Genesis came about. Okay? Any other thoughts about that? Okay, so last question I have. Well, I'm going to ask one more question, uh, more of a broad question. So if Moses wrote it, he's compiling this oral history. uh, It's after the time of the Exodus. What's the background and setting of Moses writing this? And what I mean by that is what, what is going on with the people of Israel, which is his audience that he's wanting to seek to communicate or clarify or maybe push against false beliefs? What, what is that background and setting that Moses is engaging with as he writes Genesis? Okay, yep. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, to give them a big picture of creation account of him calling Abraham out, chosen people. Absolutely. What kind of false beliefs might might Moses be seeking to push back against, especially these opening few chapters of Genesis? What do you think the religion was like in Egypt when that Israel was under and likely bought into to a degree? Okay, idolatry, polytheism, um, things like that, right? Um, And so, it's likely a lot of these Israelites just bought into the traditions and the teachings of a lot of the Egyptians. And so, Moses laying out a foundation of, no, there's one God, this is how he's created us. There's a sun God, and there's a moon God, and there's 
gods of everything. And we're going to talk about this in Genesis 1 because um, in such a short statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see it dispel so many false views, and we'll talk about this next week, uh, and many of these false views that would have been bought in by maybe many of the Israelites. And so um, Moses' intention is to demonstrate how God created, uh, that God exists, that he existed before uh, creation, things like that. Okay, So they would have experienced paganism, polytheism, idolatry, all these degrees. And so Moses' intention in sharing this and God's intention is to clarify and to say, no, there's one God and this is how he's created. Did you have something, Paul? Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, what do they do when Moses is on the mountain? They build a idol. And this is who led us out of Egypt, right? So you can see that this is very much laying out the truth that there's one God, that he alone is to be worshipped. So we'll get into some of that as we unpack the first few verses as well, really, in, throughout this study, okay? So the last question I have as we wrap up is, as we study Genesis, what kind of questions are you hoping to find the answers to? What are some things that are intriguing? As I, as I study this, you know, again, we could spend so much time unpacking so many different levels, so many ideas of apologetics and things like that, but I want to, as I think through this, I want to try to answer questions that you guys may have as you, as we study this. So are there some questions that you think of that you're hopeful as we get to Genesis, maybe you get some clarity on or you get some answers to? And I'm going to write them down as you tell me. Do we have all the answers? (laughs) Hopefully not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So who created God? All right, others. Okay. Okay. Yep. Age of the earth and elements related to that, absolutely. Say again. Is the earth round? Okay, I don't know if Genesis, I mean, I guess it sort of would touch on that. We could talk a little bit about some flat earth stuff. All right, others. Yes. 
Okay, so yeah, we'll point out a few of the names of God as we go along. Okay, somebody else? Okay. All right, perfect. Awesome. Yeah, and some of this we'll have to wait till we get to the flood and things like that. So hold on, you know, again, we're going to... We're trying to find a balance between not just rushing through, but also not being camped out in a couple verses for three months. You know what I'm saying? So we'll... We're going to start a little slower, especially because the first couple verses in the creation account, um, we, we'll have to spend some time walking through some of that, but um, we'll try to progress on, but get, but answer some of those questions. So hold tight, because some of those will, we'll have to get a, a, a big picture view of some things in creation before we can answer certain things, okay? Because like, for me, I think really talking about the dinosaurs, things like that, are maybe more related to the flood than they are to original creation. Like the, what we see in the first couple chapters. Okay. Anything else? And if you think of things as we go, don't hesitate. Raise your hand. Ask a question. If it fits with where we're at, I'll see if I can answer it. And if not, I'll make a note and we'll try to cover it at a later time. Okay. Anything else before we close in prayer? Or if you think of any before next week, just let me know if you, as you think of a question. Okay, because I know I'm putting you guys on the spot. All right, well, let's pray, and then we will move on to our worship service. God, again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is trustworthy, that it is the foundation uh, of all of life and uh, of morality, of what's right and what's wrong. And God, we know deep inside you've created in each one of us um, just a, an idea of eternity, an idea that we have value as humans, that there is a right and a wrong, there is injustice. And God, we know that that is evidence of uh, that you are the ultimate standard of right and wrong, of what is good. And so God, just help us as we work through this study to, um, Lord, not just, uh, just take things at faith value in a sense of blind faith. God, we thank you that your word lays these things out. And as we seek to study your word, God, you uh, help us to grow in our faith as we utilize our reason along with our faith and and along with ultimately your word and what it teaches. So help us through this study. Give us eyes to see. Give us wisdom. And may you be glorified uh, through our time. In Jesus' name, amen.